As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And time, and time again. Crank up the music, charge a glass. This nation is going to dance all night. A comprehensive knowledge of basic geography and other magical byproducts of football fandom. Why illegal live streaming is now a cultural cornerstone of the game. Which sets of fans can most and least justifiably say we don't make it easy for ourselves, do we? The supposedly humiliated victims of frivolous acts of skill and why football shirts will never truly be a fashion item. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 119 of the Football Clichés podcast. I am Adam Hurry and with me first of all is James Moore. How are you doing? Yeah, hi Adam. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Uh, Very well, thanks. Um, Just as I thought this podcast was going down well, rising in popularity... Uh, then Rick Parry appeared on the um, Business of Sport podcast. I hate football cliches. <laughs> oh, no. That's it. But does he mean the Twitter account, i.e. you, or the podcast? That's the question. Yeah, yeah. I, I should um, I should add the context here. Uh, this was him talking about the fan-led review to uh, Chappers and Matt Slater on the Business of Sport pod. Uh, he, did, he did go on to say uh, the, the fan-led review was a game of two halves, James. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, of all the cliches. Good to, so hopefully we'll get Rick Parry on for a, as a Holland Dicks one day. Anyway, but today is indeed a Mesut Holland Dicks. And for once, we've looked within. He's one of our own. It's Michael Cox. Hi. Hi, Adam. Yeah, very nervous about being the first non-celebrity guest on this uh, feature, which I've very much enjoyed over the uh, over the months. Well, have Wikipedia page. We'll be invited 
onto football cliches. It's fine. No, you're a man with very strident views on football. So this is the best place for you, I think. Yeah, I found that when I was coming up with things, I I liked very broad things and was annoyed at very small, specific things, which is probably a good balance. Yeah, it's it's like picking two from the bottom and five from the top on on Countdown. It's exactly right. Got the numbers wrong. Doesn't matter. Um, (laughs) Before we get stuck into Meza Holland Dicks, uh, a very, very brief adjudication panel for you both. I put it to you that this week's third round draw for the FA Cup was the most textbook draw for the third round of the FA Cup ever seen. James, let's just set the scene for the moment. They held it at Wembley, not on the one show or any of this nonsense. In its in its appropriate, but it setting. was on sort of ITV four or something stupid, wasn't it? It wasn't yeah, on the, it wasn't on Radio Five Live at two in the afternoon on a Monday mm-hmm. like it traditionalists mm-hmm. say it should be. Yeah, yeah, we might have to move with the times a little bit, but it was the chat within Michael. They really did adhere to the script so well. I mean, even the, even the the draw people themselves, Faye White and David Seaman, it's just such the perfect the perfect people to invite to do the draw. You really have hit all the cross-sections there of, of FA Cup experience and joviality. I must admit, I didn't see this draw, but I always judge it by how well the, the draw master is at saying a repeat of the 1983 final if certain draws come up, because there's certain research you can't completely do. Oh, you can right. research individual teams, but it's the matchup That's really where you get your credit from me. Well, that's a very good point, the off-the-cuff research. But um, it's, the, it's the tone of voice that you have to sort of reel off the information about the, the clubs as you read them out, James. It's just a, well, of course, uh, three times winners of the cup, of course. And you just, you have to say it like that. Yeah, you, you, have have to, to, well, you have to practice delivering those lines in two different tones, don't you? Because if they're the first team, you say it in a slightly different way to how you would say it if they're the awaiting. Yeah. I mean, and I guess word, probably depending on who they're playing against as well. I mean, the words, of course, were simply invented for the purposes of FA Cup draws. But um, without further ado, um, I've reduced the FA Cup draw to a mere 57 seconds. 57 defining seconds of an FA Cup draw coverage. And here with me in the studio to make the draw, I'm joined by David Seaman and Faye White. No stranger to the FA Cup for both of you. So no pressure on both of you to get a good draw for Arsenal then today, oh, right? Oh, pressure. <laughs> Too much pressure. Such special memories for you, though. It is, yeah. You know, and it's, it's, it's the FA Cup is just such a great competition. I remember watching it as a kid and... I've been on the wrong end of a few third round ties. I wasn't going to mention it, David. I wasn't going to mention it. We'll get you to empty... Yeah, don't drop them. (laughs) No pressure. We'll get you to empty the balls into the bowl. Number 40, Tottenham Hotspur. (laughs) Under Antonio Conte. Who are they playing, David? Oh, no. (laughs) Gerard's won it twice, of course. Aston Villa seven times winners. What a tie. Are you both happy with that draw? That's quite yeah. a tricky draw. It's, <laughs> it's going to be a great. Thanks for your company as well. And those ties will be played across the 7th to the 10th of January. Every box tick, James, do you think? Yeah, we've lost the weekend of, presumably because we have Friday night games now, right? That's, that's, that's the phrase I like to hear, the weekend of the 6th and 7th of January. Friday should be subsumed into the you concept so. of the footballing weekend, shouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Friday night. If it's after 6 o'clock on a Friday night, that's the weekend, right? Michael, the, the trickiest part, perhaps, of the... Of the of the breezy FA Cup draw chat is asking someone about what they thought about a particular draw because unless it's a, unless it's a very obvious disparate league table situation or a rivalry, the, the answer is pretty much, Whoa, yeah, it looks tricky. It'll be tricky, but yeah, um, yeah, it's okay, I think. I mean, what what superlatives could you possibly offer for, a, for any given FA Cup draw? Yeah, it's difficult to sum up. Was it 32 ties is it, at this mm. stage? I think, I mean, that is, that is difficult. The only thing they missed from that was the... Um, the draw master saying, make sure all the balls are in the hat, make sure there's none left in the bag. Which he are... did give it a little shake and they're, and they're all in, okay. but yeah, there were, yeah, there were no, no, no chat about warmed balls. 
which I thought would be prime semen territory, actually. But um, so you don't uh, get that at the actual draw, surely? Surely that's the thing people talk about afterwards. Like, uh, mad, yeah, maybe you're mad right. people on Twitter. That's what people talk about afterwards. Yeah, that's but about like Chelsea's yeah. run of home draws against football league teams. So genuinely sensational, isn't it? Anyway, we'll, we'll dig into that in FA Cup weekend. Right, let's do Meza Harland Dicks with Michael Cox. Michael, you've selected three things that you love about football, or which just mildly fascinate you, and three things that you hate or that irrationally irritate you. Let's hear your first love, please. Um, my first love is anything to do with football and geography. I, I feel like I'm not the only one, but it, when I think of Britain or when I think of Europe or when I think of the world, I'm really thinking of like a map in relation to football. And I guess like a lot of people, all my geographic knowledge comes from football. And, and while that is, I suppose, a little bit sad in a way, I think it's it does kind of educate you about the world and it does fascinate you about the world. And... I think that's something that can be celebrated. Firmly on board with this. James, geographical knowledge, and I'm talking about, you know, at least the foundations. Yeah. It's the proudest <laughs> byproduct of being into football, isn't it? I mean, yeah, my, yeah. my basic geography, to me, feels unrivaled. Yeah, 100%. You know, flags, capital cities from like England, you know, England away days, capital cities of Europe, you know, you know, all of them. You know, my, my dad is supposed to be going on a holiday to Slovenia in the new year. And he was, you know, pretty impressed that I knew the capital city was Ljubljana just off the top of my head. He was amazed that I knew the second city was Maribor. Um, and, and that's just what you learn from watching, you know, England internationals and Champions League games. But it, it does cut two ways though, doesn't it? Because, say so you had Mora. In, uh, in the Conference League this year, obviously playing against Spurs. And you might think, oh, Mora's the third city I know in Slovenia. But actually, it turns out they don't play in a place called Mora. They play in a place called Merska Sobota. So I guess it's sort of a similar principle to perhaps people erroneously thinking there's a place in Spain called Sociedad, say, or whatever. <laughs> so you have, to, you have to be careful. If this is how you're going to absorb all your geographic knowledge, you do have to just double-check these things on Wikipedia. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we, we might slip into uh, Sociedad Athletic Club. Um, discourse if we're not careful here you mentioned flags there James I, I, I'm knowing capital cities is more glamorous and cooler than knowing the flags yeah um, I think well, that's you, fair. you say that but if you're, in, if you're in the midst of a pub quiz mate they both work well <laughs> yeah fine may well find myself in that situation soon hopefully Michael let's we, we've understood now that, that football gifts you this information almost by osmosis you know you follow football for so long that this kind of stuff just drifts into your brain and you you call upon it when needed and the most, the prime scenario for when you need this, I would say, is when you're in a taxi and you've established <laughs> the country that the driver is from. And I want to test this phenomenon, this kind of innate autopilot phenomenon. I want you to give me a number between one and 209. Okay, I'll go for 117. Okay, so you've climbed into your taxi, you're feeling in a good, feeling in good spirits, you've had a good night, and your taxi driver... Is from Mozambique. Oh, Carlos Quieros. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> That's the best I can do, I think. You're not, surely, isn't Eusebio from Mozambique? Yeah, Eusebio was the same. Mozambique. Yeah, okay, yeah. Rivaldo played there briefly. See, this is all off the top of our heads. I don't know any Mozambican football clubs though, James. No, that's a good point. I think I think really knowing the clubs in the cities is probably, I, I guess like across Europe and maybe kind of the bigger countries in South America. I don't think it kind of expands into... The, the tiniest kind of outposts of Africa and Europe and wherever. You can have a go if you like. Let's have a number. Uh, 72. And that is 
Montenegro. Oh, who would I? Ah, uh, who would I go for? This, you know what? This is Do you remember that time when we played England in a World Cup qualifier? I feel like England have played them quite a few times in the last like ten years. Who, who's from Montenegro? Who's from Montenegro? Well, they, well, they had they had a funny thing where they had Jovetic and Vucinic, and oh, Serbia yeah. Serbia had loads of good defenders and loads of good mid- midfielders, but no real attackers. So had they still been the same country as they were in 2006, I think, they would have had a really good team. I just and, and again, that, when they split off, that everyone was saying that Montenegro were going to be really good and actually they've just basically been quite rubbish. <laughs> God, this is like, this is like the world would, football show. I would not uh, say that to the cabbie, by the way. Uh, but Jovetic is, Jovetic is the perfect type of player to be raising in these situations, Michael, because it's like he's, he's got a bit of Premier League baggage. And you perhaps talk about, oh, he didn't quite do it in the Premier League. But yeah, Jovetic, good player, good player. And then he'll sort of wait for the response. Yeah, I remember when he was at Fiorentina, I thought he was going to be a world beater. But yeah, <laughs> stuff like that, I think. I mean, I've got a, a very distinct memory of when I was about eight or nine and we're in a music lesson at school. And our, our music teacher, I think, I think she was from Austria and she was telling us about Mozart and said, oh, he's from the capital city of Austria. I bet none of you know the name of that. And... Uh, Manchester United had recently beaten Rapid Vienna in the Champions League, so I knew it was Vienna. And her eyes kind of lit up that, you know, I knew the... I think she probably thought I just knew where Mozart was from. Obviously, had absolutely no idea. But stuff like that, it just it sustains you throughout your life in what can be sometimes quite awkward small talk situations, I think. Yeah, like European naming conventions, James. Like you'll spot a surname. So, oh, are you from... Uh, yeah, because yeah, you share your name with... Uh, yeah, so yeah, and so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instant connections. And that's what football gives you. Our listeners feel the same. Andy Penman, cynical Andy Penman writes, is in before everyone tells you they only know European geography from following Champions League UEFA Cup games. Too late, Andy Penman. Penman. Because we've already covered that. But I love this one. This is probably the best listener message of the whole podcast already. NUFC Roulette writes in, Michael. He says, I recall using the phrase buoyant mood in an essay in year eight and being lavished with praise by my teacher for my use of language, blessed by football. That is good. That is good. This is it. We're extending the net here. Football gives you so much. Yes, you know a capital city. Yes, you might recognise a flag. Yeah, you might know that Jovetic is Montenegrin. But gifting you the phrases that might sound hackneyed in football, but if you use them in an English literature essay, happy days. Buoyant mood. We're quite dismissive of phrases like that because we hear them so much. But I guess if you take them out of that context, actually, sometimes they do sound quite clever. It really is a nice little showcase into what football has awarded us, way above and beyond what we actually enjoy about football. So this is this is a lovely little start. Football and geography. It was sexier than it sounded, that's for sure. Michael, your second love of football, please. Yeah, my second love is maybe slightly controversial. It's the Saturday 3pm blackout which um, I think has a clear purpose, I think serves the purpose, and I'm really quite proud of it. I mean, the Premier League is the most watched league in the world, it's massively popular. There's also football below that level that would be nice to support and nice to sustain. And so a very basic idea, we don't put the Premier League on television when all those other teams are playing. So they get less competition and they get slightly better attendances. It's great. I'm glad you've brought your your prime kind of bugbears slash preoccupations to this podcast, not holding anything back. James, there's there's, there's an instant debate that, that gets wheeled out for this, the 3pm blackout thing. Yeah. There's the it's an anachronism brigade. And then there's the other justifiable mentality, perhaps of which Michael subscribed to, which is kind of stemming the Premier League tide, this kind of seemingly unstoppable, you know, desire for Premier League coverage. There has to be, something has to be left sacred. Yeah, I mean, I think as Michael says, you know, there's th- this country is head and shoulders above most other countries in the world in terms of the strength of lower leagues. And, you know, you go to a country like Italy, say, and if you're 
three or four levels down. I mean, the crowds are ludicrously tiny. You're talking about hundreds of people. But if you went to a conference game or National League, sorry, game in England, you'd get like a couple of thousand there. And that, that that's the difference. And I don't think you can ignore, without wanting to be too sincere, and I know that's not the point of this, <laughs> I don't think you can ignore the fact that, that has been preserved by the fact that people have been discouraged from sitting on their asses and watching games on TV every well, Saturday afternoon. Okay, so if we if we if we slightly sincerely discuss how much of an effect the blackout actually has on that very scenario, Michael, we're always presented with this kind of this hypothetical situation where someone has to go, oh, am I going to watch? Oh, am I going to watch Man United versus Aston Villa, or am I going to go down the road and watch, you know, so and so collieries or whatever? And it's um, and it's like that's presented as the dilemma. It's like standing there going, oh, I don't know what to do. Yeah, um, but is that but I- is that realistic? Well, I, I think the only error you've made is that they always go for the least glamorous game. So they say, oh, am I going to stop supporting Sutton because Newcastle Burnley's on TV? <laughs> and I, there's two objections I have to that. <laughs> One, if it's the relevant local club, I think it makes a difference. You know, you, you go to the northeast, and I think the non-league clubs, they always try to move games so they don't clash with the local team. But more to the point, it wouldn't be just watching a very unglamorous 3pm game it would basically be a goals show. It would be five games at Saturday 3pm. It would be like the BT show with James Richardson, which is really good. And the whole culture would change. The whole culture would be Saturday 3pm is the main televised football slot. It would become a culture of sitting at home and and watching those games. And I mean, I looked at the fixtures for this weekend. There's only three Saturday 3pms in the Premier League. And there are Arsenal, Southampton, Chelsea, Leeds and Liverpool Villa. And flicking between those games, I think would be a massive draw. And there are a lot of people... Who, who kind of do have affections for more than one club. I mean, James is a good example. He's got a season ticket Premier League club. If they're not playing, he goes to see his mm-hmm. local non-league team. And, but if there was a goal show Saturday 3pm, you know, in generations to come, I'm not sure people would, would do that. And there are enough people like James that do do that, that I think does support non-league football at a certain level. And I think that is worth sustaining and worth, worth preserving. I'd sort of count myself as one of the more kind of neutral observers about this, because I'm, I'm happy for it to go either way for, for the reasons we've already talked about. But it would be churlish for us not to consider a, a, a near future, James, where, where the blackout is cast aside and the kind of the, the, the tide kind of overwhelms it for desire to watch Premier League football, this insatiable desire. Yeah. And Michael's already presented this scenario of, we have, of the kind of the goal show style format. But there, there's this, this kind of latent promise of we might get a kind of red zone, NFL red zone situation i don't think i want that much football in my life at one time i don't think i'd like it what do you wouldn't you wouldn't want to watch all the goals at the same time you wouldn't want to sit there and have four or five matches no, actually no i think i agree with you actually bullshit, just want to watch one I I just, like it yeah just want to watch one game at a time yeah i'm surprised by you saying that because i think you would like to watch it and i wouldn't like to watch it but there is a danger <laughs> you, though you'd love that you'd love that yeah i know i would i know i would but I'd, I'd like it because everybody else was enjoying it at the same time which is which is um, very much to the heart of enjoying everything these days but michael i mean in that scenario we'd be in huge danger of just reducing premier league football to to clips wouldn't we and just highlights which i'm sure yeah. you're dead against well not necessarily i mean i wouldn't necessarily disagree with the concept of a red zone if you were to shift the games away from 3pm if there's such insatiable desire to watch all 38 of your team's games which to be fair if you're paying 75 pound a month for sky and bt i think is not an unreasonable request but i i just think the the concept of having all the non-league games and lower league games at a different time to the big attraction works works really well i just think it's uh i think more people should kind of uh yeah just make this point that 
you know, Haringey Borough can probably survive as a football club in part because they're not competing with Tottenham Hotspur being on Sky at 3pm on Saturday. Albeit they don't have that many games at 3pm on Saturday, but you take my point. So you know, one day we may well open the final Pandora's box of football coverage. But for now, and in recent years, the only way to get round this is illegal streaming. Now, I paused about whether to talk about this on the podcast, James, um, not unreasonably, because, you know, talk about any other kind of illegal activity, and it would be like, oh, well, we can't advocate that. And, and to an extent, we're not really advocating it, but illegal football streaming just feels like the most acceptable act it is that you're like not allowed to do, the, to talk about. It's yeah. just like, well... Um, everyone's done it. It's okay, and it's funny. Well, it's there like are so that, many things about it that are funny. It's like that video piracy thing, isn't it? It's like you know, you you wouldn't steal a car. That is that. It kind of <laughs> the expectation is that kind of escalation towards like a proper crime. Yeah. Uh, you know, with that one to kind of irk the broadcasters who have paid millions and millions of pounds for the rights to those matches, who probably you know think that illegal streaming is the bane of their existence. But personally, I find watching games on streams just completely unbearable, and I would rather not. If my team are playing, I, I, I know, three o'clock on a Saturday or, or like a Sunday away game as they had recently uh, where the game wasn't on TV, I, I, I wouldn't be able to watch it on the stream. I, I can't. It's just that chat room. It's just the idiots in that chat room. And you know they're going to tell you there's a goal coming before you see it. That's what they do. That's what they're there for. This is amateur behaviour. The first thing you do when you get to these pages is close the is close the chat box. You know, That's you, before you, you even close do, the pop-up Can you always ads. do that? Yeah, you can. You can pretty much close them all. You have to. I've got to say, I'm, I'm obviously a massive square, but I think maybe twice in my life have I watched an illegal stream. I did wonder. I and, felt like and, you might be the last the last guy holding out. And only, I think one of those occasions was when I was at The Guardian. They wanted me to do an article on Paolo Di Canio's first game in charge of Sunderland, and it wasn't on TV, so I had to find one. But aside from that, I, I bear, I'm the same as James. If I can't watch a game in in proper you know in a proper situation, I just wait and watch the highlights or watch it at a later. later it's, just, date. it's just knowing it's on a delay as well, and you do get you know even when you're you're kind of streaming games through Chromecast or whatever legally, you still have the same thing of I, I don't know this is a t- terrible thing to admit, but I really need the second screen and really need to be on Twitter when I'm watching a football match just so I can kind of interact <laughs> with other people and make crap jokes about people's haircuts and stuff. And if I, can't, if I can't do that, if I'm 30 seconds behind, oh, maybe yeah, they need enough. to invent something that means your Twitter is delayed by 30 seconds or whatever. It should be a, there be should perfect. be a delay feature on Twitter. They really, really should. But just to be clear, Michael, this wasn't a kind of a moral standpoint. You weren't just holding out for purity reasons. No, no, not really. I mean, I, I was on uh, LimeWire and whatever back on the day <laughs> getting the music before Spotify. I, I, I basically just can't be bothered with... It just always seems a, a bit too much of it. I probably don't know the right places to go or whatever, but it's just... I'm happy to watch it on official broadcast networks. Well, I really am. It's interesting that you bring kind of music piracy into this because there's a certain nostalgia about music piracy, you know, Napster <laughs> yeah. and that sort of stuff. But if anything confirms illegal streaming's place as a kind of cornerstone of footballing culture now, is that you can get nostalgic about illegal live streaming, James. Um, Neil McColl writes in, it says the early days involved downloading super dodgy virus-ridden programs that allowed you to watch fuzzy versions of East Asian and Middle Eastern channels, but you still had to know which channel the game was on. So many an evening were spent feeding TV listings into Babelfish. So you had a situation where you would you were you were hacking into streams of a channel and then waiting for the game to come on rather than having uh, a dedicated feed provided to you. That feels What's like too much time? effort. That's too much effort for me. Yeah, magic, magic. I had completely forgotten about that phase of illegal streaming until Neil reminded us of it. Michael, I mean, I guess I'm trying to preach to you now, but if your team are playing at 3 p.m. on a Saturday, you just feel immune to spyware, like. <laughs> it's, it's the least vigilant I am on the internet 
at any stage. Anything else. If I was trying to shop for something, be like, oh, God, that looks dodgy. I'm not going on that. Or, you know, that, that website doesn't look legit. I need to go to a registered supplier. But want to watch my team at 3 p.m. on a Saturday? Don't care. I am clicking through everything. Uh, it's amazing the links that people will go to to watch their team live at Saturday on a 3 p.m. Yeah, I mean, I do understand that, especially after last season when all 38 games for every team we're on it does feel odd that they're not now but I mean like I say if, if you want all those games on and you're happy to shift them away from Saturday 3pm I mean there's like I said there's only three of ten games this weekend that actually are Saturday 3pm so we're not that far away from not having that slot as a, a Premier League slot anyway I'd be entirely happy if every game was on but I still think you can uh, yeah move those games away and retain the Saturday 3pm slot because I just think it does a lot of good for football down the pyramid you know it's not handout it's not money trickling down big clubs don't want money to be trickling down it's about their existence and just giving them a little bit of room to breathe so i'm a massive fan illegally stream harringay borough problem solved yeah make it easy for people the kind of whack-a-mole kind of um, dynamic that's gone on with shutting these things down james and then some sort of popping back up again fascinating kind of it's fascinating how the premier league just hasn't quite got to grips with it it feels like something they should have been able to do by now given that it's like a multi-billion yeah, it, it does feel like thing. you know that thing people always say that like pornography always leads the way with technology because there's just that or there was so much money in it that they would always like they're like the head of vhs sure. and whatever else you would have thought then the premier league would be the new pornography that they would be like leading the way in like all of these kind of you know there, there must be ways that they can kind of scramble the pictures so you can only see it on a certain device or whatever right surely i don't know i mean i'm not a scientist yeah you, surely you that's can't... possible yeah, you can't screen you can't screenshot BT Sport anymore. It's very annoying. Yeah, there you go. How do they do it? I don't get it. Incredible <laughs> minds out there that you can you can you can black out a screen only on a screenshot. I find it absolutely fascinating. But speaking of software, Jeff Lacey says his pivotal moment in illegal streaming was the discovery of Sopcast. Sopcast, yeah. Shout out to all the third party software illegal streamers out there. The real hardcore. <laughs> again. Again, the links that people go to, James, just like downloading random pieces of software that, in, that means you can only open a certain unique type these of people, link to watch a game. These people need help, genuinely. These people <laughs> just go outside. It's fine. Go and watch your local football team and oh, do something on. else with your time. I mean, genuinely. Genuinely. Go outside and do something else. It's, tr- it's true. Like If you're in the UK, there's loads of amazing teams you can go and watch play. If you're outside the UK, you can just watch a game on TV normally, so it's fine. But think of all the things you're going to miss out on on a Saturday 3pm. I'll, I'll listen to this podcast and you'll tell me all the funny things. Yeah. It'll be all right. Specifically, Elliot Binks writes in, Michael. It says, I vividly remember watching Amir Zaki's overhead kick against Liverpool in 2008 on Sopcast. It seemed to be the elite P2P streamer at the time. Uh, it did make me think that Amir Zaki must be the, the <laughs> ultimate illegally streamed footballer. I can't think of someone more illegally streamed than Amiyazaki's Purple Patch. That does feel like the kind of peak era of illegal streaming, doesn't it? Yeah. Early 2010s. Illegal streaming, Barclays. And also, would it be fair to say as well, that, that a little bit like, you know, I mentioned LimeWine that earlier. At that point, there was no Spotify. There was no iTunes. So that was just how you got it. At a certain point, there was no way to watch Sky Go on your computer or your iPad. But there was a way to watch it legally. So by cho- you weren't necessarily specifically choosing an illegal way of watching it. You just wanted to watch it on your laptop wherever you were. So, you know, the, the illegal way was, at one point, I think probably the most convenient way. Maybe that is still the case, but with Sky Go now, I think it's probably less excuse. I said at the start of this segment that I, I felt slightly uncomfortable about about freely talking about um, such activity, but I have, to, I have to end this segment by saying it's a, it's a fucking thrill watching an illegally streamed game. It just is. It just is. <laughs> I, it's, you need to do more illegal stuff because if that's what you're getting your thrill from, honestly, I, you're missing out on a lot of stuff. Right, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, 
it won't see Athletic Christmas Party this week, so maybe that'd be illegal soon. <laughs> It'll be hard around really the corner watching the Europa League game on Thomas' laptop. <laughs> Just to round it off. Right, um, speaking of rounding things off, Michael, let's hear your third and final love of football, please. It's quite specific. It's being able to date anything in my life by virtue of footballing events. I'm probably not the only one, but I mean, I can recall any football game that coincides with anything even vaguely interesting in my life. And I don't think other people who aren't into football can do this as much. I mean, for example, my dad is not a big football fan and will sometimes just say to me, when did we get, um, when did we get those sofas in the living room? And I know that it was just before World Cup 2002 because I had a real <laughs> comfy World Cup. And you get this thing where, you know, if, if a really comfy big event happens in, uh, you know, a big news event... People always say, well, you always remember where you were when you found out that Princess Diana died. I'm like, I can tell you where I was for Arsenal Dynamo Kiev in 1998. Sorry, just, I don't even remember the result. Just to interrupt you, sorry, Michael, the day that Princess Diana died, didn't they cancel Liverpool Newcastle? Supposed to be on the Super Sunday. Yeah, and they did. So there yeah. you go. I remember because yeah. of that. This phenomenon presumably only useful for even numbered years, James. No, you remember, you remember like from big Premier League games as well, right? And like, you know, big European finals and stuff. I was, uh, what yeah, I was going to ask Michael, games. what I was going to yeah. ask Michael was in 20 years time when he's talking to his kids about the pandemic, how will you remember when the pandemic was? Or when it started? Well, I mean, that's interesting because I've found the last year and a bit very difficult to do because of that. Because all, you know, we haven't been going to games. You've been watching all the games in the same place from home. So it's actually been quite difficult to date the last the last few months. I mean, I'm not sure there was necessarily a, a footballing... Ma- I suppose Liverpool Atletico <coughs> is kind of... That was the last yeah. normal, wasn't it? So I guess you could find out from that. But it's, yeah, slightly more... I mean, I, I, I can remember... If I really wanted to, I could find out the the date of my last GCSE exam because it was the day after Spain beat Portugal... Uh, Portugal beat Spain in Euro 2004. It's just stuff like that. I mean... The ultimate thing with this is Fever Pitch, which mm. is like a really well-written book. And to everyone who is, you know, is very popular with non-football fans who are like, oh my God, this guy, he, he relates everything in his life back to football. And it was so popular because it was so well-written. But I think that general experience, the vast majority of football fans pretty much feel the same about it. Football is responsible for you mentioning your GCSEs to me at least half a dozen times. So I think I think that proves exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. But the danger here, if you... If you kind of entwine yourself and your football existence with time so deeply, I fear that you might get into kind of want to feel old. Young player X yeah. was only two when slightly older player X made his debut. It, and I know you hate that chat. I know you um, do. Well, I do hate it because it's always just 17 years in the past. It's always <laughs> exactly 17 years. It doesn't really matter. But it's funny because, again, in, in, in other walks of life, people always use the Oh, when this happened, so and so were number one in the charts. No, black, <laughs> black eyed peas were number one with Where is the Love? But like after a certain point, no one actually really knows what was number one in the charts. Do you know what I mean? Like the charts stopped having that much meaning about it's the turn of the century. It's going to be useless in 20 years' time when people try start trying to use that. Who's yeah. going to care? You, you, want, you want this happened when John Gregory's Aston Villa were top of the Premier League, right? <laughs> yes, and you really like put that it specifically good. in that bit of 1998. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jack Target writes in and says, when life events happened, Jack Target writes in, he says, usually based around World Cups, from the big ones, like knowing when I met my wife because it was a World Cup year, to being low-key agitated about going to a secret bunker tour because I was missing Ivory Coast versus North Korea. <laughs> Incredible <laughs> detail from Jack Target here. But, um, but 
I, I'm not sure you'd need that much of a helping hand to know when you met your wife, but it's good to know that World Cups come in handy like that because it does work like clockwork. Well, it certainly did until last year when the Euros didn't happen and now the Euros is this year and then, then the World Cup is going to be in the winter. So next summer will be a really a real struggle. But yeah, I bet there's I bet there's so many people who can do exactly the same. Can I fear for your out. life for the next 18 months or so. It's going to be difficult, but mm. yeah. Definitely. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Oh, look at that! That is wonderful! Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. Welcome back to Mesut Harland Dicks. This is with Michael Cox, who's, so far, he's talked about football and geography and the, the gift that it has given us all. Standing up for the 3pm blackout. And being able to date anything in your life through football matches and events. A promising start, a fulfilling start. But now it's time, Michael, to tell us about your hatreds of football. What's your first one? My first one is what I would call performative anger or misery in football fandom. So I think this is a close cousin of the for my sins, <laughs> long suffering lines we've, we've discussed previously. I mean, the classic example was I saw a couple of months ago on Twitter, there was a, like a one of the big Twitter accounts did a, one of those questions. What's the most uh, been the most depressing time for you as a football fan? And one of the first responses was someone saying, well, I'm a Manchester United fan, so where do I start? And <laughs> I, just, I just can't get my head around that mentality. It's just, it's, it's really, really odd. Okay, that's an interesting, interesting example to use to start with because, James, my first thought about this is, do all football fans want to feel like this? Is it almost like glorifying... And I use the word suffering very lightly here. Is it glorifying the idea of being yeah, know, I discontent think, with your club? I think I think there's like a, a feeling that you're not, and, and I don't think this is necessarily fair, but I think there's a feeling that you're not really a proper football fan unless you've suffered a bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there are certainly some big clubs I could name uh, in the Premier League. Well, Michael hasn't named one of them, obviously the other one's Arsenal. And Liverpool used to do it to an extent, where fans would kind of pretend... You know, oh, this is this has been a tough. We've not won a trophy for eight years. Oh, it's so embarrassing. We're such a shambles. You know, we've not been in the Champions League for a couple of seasons, and it's just like to to anybody else outside, it, it, even you know, halfway down the Premier League, like it, people are looking up at you and just absolutely pissing themselves that you think that's that's a struggle to not be in a Champions League for a couple of seasons, and it's such a such a weird mentality. It's such a weird way. It, I mean, it's just like you're punishing yourself for no reason. You're not if you're not enjoying if you can't enjoy being sixth in the Premier League. Like, I mean, imagine how difficult you're going to find it when, you know, if, if your team like go bust and have to start again in League Two or whatever. I mean, you, how what would it happen to these people if it happened? I mean, you imagine if like what happened to Rangers happened to Arsenal. What would happen? To, <laughs> Twitter would explode. Twitter would explode. <laughs> but, but then they would get to enjoy the journey back up. 
This is the thing. We can always enjoy a team doing badly and their fans going mental about it. But when when they inevitably bounce back, it all resets. But there's your your points about this are being are very valid. This idea that um, that fans of a, a certain level of club should never never become kind of despondent about what's going on because they're always liable to win a trophy soon enough. But Michael, I swear this works in the other direction, in the completely inverse way. Because you go further down the pyramid, it's almost like it's romanticised to be a fan of a lower league club when really it's the same principle. You've just chosen to support a team. Why is it any more virtuous to support a League Two club than a Premier League club? Because that's the impression I seem to get. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I don't think it necessarily is more virtuous. And I think the same thing pretty much does happen at, at that level. And I kind of get the... There's a difference between almost like embracing the fact it's a bit sad to be that obsessed with football and actually implying that it causes you loads of misery. Um, and I, I guess my... The more modern objection to this is that it's kind of become professionalised by the kind of YouTube... For example, Arsenal Fan TV, everyone only watches it when they lose the game. And you just get this real... This very obvious fake rants to camera about, you know, dropping two points away at Southampton or whatever. And it's just, I think people probably do take their cues from that in terms of that's how you're meant to act as a football fan. And it just gives the whole thing a completely unnecessarily, you know, negative spin. And I think it also leads to people getting themselves worked up about refereeing bias and media bias, which deep down they know doesn't exist. (laughs) But I mean, people use, I mean, to go back to the kind of Arsenal Manchester United level, People used to call fans like that glory hunters, but I'm not sure they're hunting glory. I think there's almost, because they are scared of being accused of being glory hunters, they actually want to depict that it's not all roses, that, you know, they do go through the the bad emotions as well. And to a certain extent they do, but football's basically good fun. Like, it's a hobby, it's an interest. If it really causes you that much misery, you don't have to still engage with it. You know what I mean? This is absolutely right. James, I, I don't want to undermine the concept of football fandom entirely, but surely it should be kind of, you know, you get what you're given scenario, almost regardless of who you've chosen to support. Because this idea, this idea, we, we know the phrase long-suffering, long-suffering football fans. And it seems to me that, once you become a particularly long-suffering set of fans, uh, I'm obviously talking about Newcastle as a classic example here in recent years. There's this concept, especially among people who don't have no interest in your club whatsoever, this idea that you deserve something for it. Yeah. You know, they deserve a trophy after or, or all they deserve years. this mad buyout with people chucking hundreds of million pounds at the club all of a sudden. Yeah, it is an odd... That, that, you know, a fan of Newcastle would deserve that more than, say, a fan of... Crystal Palace, who have been slightly more on a slightly more even keel over the last sort of five or six years, uh, but, but they don't seem to have really had a terrible time just because they've sort of flown under the radar in terms of how crap they've been. So yeah, just forget forget Crystal Palace fans, Newcastle fans deserve it more. Yeah, you're right. It's just completely illogical, really. Yeah. To bring this full circle, Michael, I feel like a real universal aspect of all of this is the phrase "We never make it easy for ourselves, <laughs> do we?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wonder it, if there are a set of fans who've never said that. It's just like, do you know what? It's pretty easy being a fan of this club. It's all right, you know. Yeah, there's also a kind of old typical us kind of thing when <laughs> when something really stands up is like they they go one nil ahead fifty minutes in, and then twenty minutes in time concede an equaliser. It's that just happens to every team. It's not specific to your football club, honestly. Well, this issue was raised recently during the World Cup qualifiers, James. And uh, I posed the question on Twitter about 
does the idea of never making easiest for yourselves, do we, exist at international level? Because oh, yeah, I thought yeah, it was more yeah. of a kind of a club thing. And then this flood of Welsh fans. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. And, and, a, and, a, and a smattering of Scots, I should say, as well, claiming this for themselves. Is it just fairly justified now, I think about it, isn't it? I mean, look, far be it from me, terms, I know you're, I mean, you're, inviting not, me, you're inviting me as an English bloke to say that how well I'm, I'm just saying, do they fit the criteria? I'm not saying whether you agree with it or not. I don't care about uh, that. Do they fit the classic cliche criteria of we don't make it easy for ourselves? I think they probably do. Maybe it's I more mean, maybe, acute. but I, I, can't, I can't think of too many examples where they've been like in... in I suppose Wales had the 94 World Cup Paul Bowden thing. 20, over 25 years ago now, though. Like, what, what kind of near brushes of Scotland have where they've lost to... Teams where they feel they should have won, and it's really well, cost them. Who the, they lost was it? Lith- wasn't Lithuania? Who did they lose to? Was it Pharaohs or someone? Like yeah. three years ago. Mm. But that wasn't like a difference between them qualifying and not, was it? So I'm not. I'm, no, not, but- I'm not necessarily sure that either of them have had like a, this litany of like calamitous close calls. So a Scotland, well, Scotland. I suppose Newcastle nearly won the title. So Scotland aren't Newcastle. Scotland are what, Villa. <laughs> yeah, in a way. It's also like I mean. Wales, relatively small country, quite a small population. They've overachieved for the last five, six years. So of course it's not going to be make. Of course they're not going to make it easy for themselves because they're doing something that for them is actually quite difficult. So actually, it's always going to feel like a struggle. Actually, this is a good point. The we never make it easy for ourselves. It actually, does work at international level because you can use start you can start throwing populations into the mix and you know with our vast geographical knowledge, uh, uh, we know. Surely it would apply to like Port- Port- definition. Surely it would apply to like Portugal or Italy or someone who always like. Portugal always seemed to be in the playoffs for these tournaments. Yeah. And Italy quite I've kind of scraped for a few times as well. So mm. surely it applies. Yeah, and they're like demonstrably good footballing nations. Yeah. Like surely you never like, hear the Dutch banging on about it, you well, yeah, know, exactly. making it hard for themselves. Exactly. Well, I suppose that should, yeah, they literally do because of the infighting. So they find a way. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Glad we nailed that. Michael, tell us about your second hatred of modern football. Um, and this is a very specific one. It's... Um, if a player does a good piece of skill to go past an opponent, this whole thing that he's destroyed his opponent or uh, increasingly that he's ended his opponent's career, which is just technically and literally very incorrect because he's still allowed to play in the rest of the game. Oh, <laughs> come on. You can't, you can't object to this on a literal level. No, but no, but there's so many objections I have. One is generally a relatively pointless piece of skill. And maybe I'm a Philistine for not appreciating the art of football. But two, it is the focus on the victim. People are so obsessed with this kind of humiliation of a fullback rather than actually celebrating the, the good piece of play. And I also think there's a... When you actually think about it, if a player does a really, really good piece of skill, it's not actually that humiliating to be beaten by it. It would be more humiliating if a player miscontrolled the ball, slipped over... <laughs> Kicked it with a stunning leg and beat the fullback. That's when you should have your career ended. That's when you've been destroyed. <laughs> so, so yeah. So if anything, you're kind of participating in the art form if you get beaten by a lovely bit of skill. Yeah, uh, I think so. But I don't think the identity of the defender even matters. You can just say it's a, you know, great turn by Vinicius or whatever. It doesn't matter that the right back gets beaten by. Hey, it. hey, we've all been nutmegged by Jack Lang at some point. So um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess we we asked our listeners for kind of frivolous and unnecessary footballing acts, not necessarily skill, but things that really kind of do sort of float around unnecessarily in football. Elliot Wilson, I really enjoyed this. He says, the rainbow flick, James. He says, I don't think I've ever seen anything productive come from it other than the ball is now at a dodgy height 
the small percentage chance of it being past the opposition Lasher. I don't know what Lasher means, but we'll carry on. Generations of solid Brexit defenders and midfielders have been sacrificed to practice this skill. Um, <laughs> but it made me think, James, that the rainbow flick of all the of all the kind of montage skills on YouTube, of all the kind of wow, look at what this guy can do. The rainbow flick is perhaps the the ultimate example of the one that the edit never lets lets you see what happens just after he's done. It. Yeah, I can't think. And actually, <laughs> it's always bullshit. Someone did do it. Was it Vinicius who did it? Actually, quite recently in a game, it might have been. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's not one you see too often, like in a in a game situation. And you're right. I, I think it's one of those ones that, like, if you went onto YouTube and did a search for like rainbow rainbow flick montage, it would all be sort of second division in Brazil. You wouldn't they see never, it. The ball wouldn't never lands. You're never going to recognise yeah. the kit or the players or whatever. It's always going to just <laughs> yeah. be some random lad playing on like a park in Brazil somewhere. Absolutely right. Um, taking this to something of an extreme level of of analysis here, Neil Shellat, Michael says every single juggling related skill and indeed the ability to juggle itself is completely pointless. It's interesting actually. It's a bit weird how keepy ups have endured as a thing in football. Like, I mean, you know, from unveilings at the Bernabeu to kids practicing them in the garden. Why are they so crucial? What's the big deal? Yeah, relatively pointless. Um... And the thing is, as well, when you were about seven or eight, doing kick-ups was quite uh, was quite revered. But even if you're a below-average Sunday league player, actually, kick-ups are relatively easy, aren't they? Not, it's not particularly an interesting thing. And when you sit in a, in a game, it never really leads to anything, like you say. I remember, was it Nanny against Arsenal was doing it in an FA Cup game and got kicked around? The thing is, I, if I was a defender, I wouldn't even be bothered by it. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's slightly irrelevant to the whole thing. It's it's so irrelevant to the, the real ebb and flow of a football game that, James, I genuinely think it takes, I guess, one keepy up. That is, the first kick to get it up, and then the clock starts, the, the counter starts. One keepy up, and then it starts to become, oh my God, what's he doing? Like, literally one keepy up is enough for it to go, whoa, yeah, what's yeah. he up to? In a game scenario. But surely, I, think, I kind of feel like if you try to do that in a game, you're just making life more difficult for yourself. Like, it's more difficult to control the ball and pass it to someone else. And like you say... Once you've got the ball in that situation, it's more difficult to get it somewhere dangerous. I would offer one caveat to this, Michael. It's when a defender has the ball in the corner and there's no way out. If they can engineer enough space with their backside just to free up time and space to flick it up and volley it back over the head, I feel like that is a very, very useful way of doing it. So maybe all those hours in the back garden are come to fruition after all. Yeah, that is good. A flick up and, and volley kind of thing. Yeah, that, that's fine. But it's also, it's interesting you say that because that, yeah, it's effective, isn't it? Which which most most skill is is not. And it's just, yeah, it's always the focus on the the play getting done that annoys me. It's not even a celebration of good play. It's not a it's not a rap battle, is it? You know, you can just, you can just <laughs> turn around and play on and chase him and try and tackle him. It's victim shaming. It's fine. I just... <laughs> Uh, two things here. I've just, I've just echoes here of when Jonathan Wilson simply said flamboyance as one of his hatreds of football. And um, secondly, I'm trying to think of a scene that would annoy a proper football man the most, James. And if you know, if you took a DVD back to the 1980s and showed a proper football man footage of of like a skill battle on Soccer AM, where if someone gets nutmeg, everyone just falls on the floor screaming. <laughs> what, the what is so funny? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. I mean, I think I think that's the crux of it. As Michael says, it's a kind of non-practical application of these things that they just there's been no benefit in a match situation. I can imagine those are the kind of things that would, uh, yeah, that would, yeah, that would annoy. 
I'm dangerously close to the age of really hating those videos, but I just about, just about right the right side of the line to appreciate why it would be funny to watch it happen. But it, um, but yeah. And just to say one last thing, I think the best player I've ever seen at, at skills and that kind of thing was Ronaldinho, who at his peak was unquestionably the best player in the world. And he's probably my favourite ever player to watch because he combined those two things. But I can't name you a single defender that he mugged off. Because it, it didn't matter, but people just went, wow, Ronaldinho's brilliant. But I can't name the, you know, Spanish right back who got... Nor his family. <laughs> no, I mean, maybe... <laughs> people, but I, 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 I'm going to disprove my own point here by not remembering his name, but people do remember the name of the Swedish guy that Cruyff did the first time, right? With the Cruyff turn. Isn't oh, he yes, kind of broadly yes, famous? Yes, but also... No, he was the penalty guy. He's also Danish. Yeah. You're right. He, I mean, he gets interviewed quite a lot, doesn't he? And he, I bet... It, but he's very much like... The Jerome Boateng yeah, was, of his time. It was very much like, yeah, it was a brilliant piece of skill and it was it was nice to be part of it. So, I mean, he hasn't had his career ended. If anything, he's, he's probably got a bit of work of it. Jan, Jan Olsen. There you go. Better to be remembered for that than nothing at all. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Oh, look at that! That is wonderful! Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. Now, we've annoyed the kids enough with that one. Tell us about your third <laughs> hatred of football, Michael. Uh, hatred is maybe a little bit strong, but it's, it's the slightly recent phenomenon of football shirts being a real fashion thing. Um, I mean, football shirts, I have many football shirts that I play football in or support my team in. And obviously kids wearing football shirt is is fine. But I mean, there's an example of this season, Venezia have got promoted to Serie A for the first time in 20 years. And now their fans were genuinely long suffering, right? Because when right. they got relegated, the president took over another club. He took over Palermo. He did the old football manager thing of buying the entire Venezia team, transferring it to the new club and the manager. And Venezia were left to almost literally fall into the sea. They've got back to the Serie A for the first time in 20 years. And the club have clearly gone, well, we need to maximise this revenue. So they brought out these nonsense shirts that apparently are the best shirts you've ever seen if you're into, you know, certain football magazines. And I'd be really annoyed if I was a a fan of that club because they're just playing to people who haven't been there for 20 years. They don't care about the club at all. And it, it just strikes me as being completely fake. Yep. Okay. Well, I want to set the, I want to set the kind of cultural aspect of this aside for the moment because there, there are more kind of nuts and bolts to get into here, James. I mean, football shirts, they're not comfortable. 
they are increasingly, I think, not even good quality material, like and you know, sort of manufacturing. I feel like '90s football shirts are much more sophisticated for some bizarre reason, and they don't fit very well. They're not designed to fit well. Not, you know, yeah, they're not, not tailored. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, unless you buy like the as kind a of, garment, unless you buy the they're, fan, they're fundamentally shit. Unless you buy the one the play, that are kind of the players wear, you know, there's like two <laughs> tiers of football shirt, yeah, and you can buy it. And we're kind of venturing into the gammon territory again, but let's, yeah, yeah, of course, let's just lean into it. You know, there's two mm. tiers of a shirt. You can get one for sixty quid, or one for a hundred quid, and a hundred quid one is the one the players wear, and presumably that is far more comfortable. But yeah, I I I do think football shirts have become a slightly odd thing, and you now see. I know retro shirts have been have been a thing for quite a long time. I don't really remember people having them when I was a kid or a student or whatever. I feel like it's more like the last sort of ten years or so. I mean, or certainly they're much more prevalent than they used to be. But I do find it quite odd that you see people kind of in their early twenties wearing replica shirts of, cl- of the club they support, but from long before they supported them. I kind of feel like there's a certain degree of I don't want to say cultural appropriation. But it's it's like a kind of sense that you've you've suffered in, in a way. Yeah. I mean, maybe this brings us back to Michael's pick before last. Actually, this kind of performative anger or suffering, mm. like the idea that you've maybe been you've experienced an era of that club that you actually haven't. Do you want to work out the timeline for this? Because you said that kind of retro shirts weren't really a thing until fairly recently. I think what might have delayed retro. Well, they existed, but they becoming... were just shirts back then. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> good point, yes. Um, this idea of, of knowingly retro football shirts may have been delayed by the brief early to mid-2000s phenomenon that was wearing a T-shirt that depicted a footballer on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah, had... Yeah. I, t-shirts, for my t- sins, t-shirts 365, does that still exist? Yeah, yeah, for my sins, I believe I had a shirt that depicted Zaire defender Mwepo Ilunga of kicking the ball away in the 1974 <laughs> World Cup when he wasn't supposed to. That okay, is the that, most football cliches thing ever. I know. That, that is better awful. than mine, which was uh, Simon Davis, the former Tottenham and Wales winger. <laughs> I feel like we've both been quite on brand there. <laughs> what a combination that is. I mean, I am still trying to find the right occasion to wear my Italia 90 referee shirt that I bought on eBay early lockdown. What a, what a sense. It's great, but it's the moment you put it on, Michael, then this is this comes back to my point of how impractical football shirts are and their predecessors. The moment I put it on, my body temperature raises one and a half degrees. It's the stuffiest thing. Honestly, it's like a sauna, like a mobile sauna. They're so uncomfortable. But I, I'd, the funny thing with that is, I mean, I have occasionally been at a pub or something and I've been standing at a bar and there's been someone with a into shirt on and I've got chatting to them if I stood next to someone with a referee shirt on <laughs> am, I me- am I meant to chant at them that they're a wanker I, I really don't know what the situation inherently would be. cool person someone who's someone who's happy to take a sideways look at the whole process that, that's probably what's going to go through your head but um no perhaps we're internalizing this too much change okay all three of us not massive Wearers of other teams' football shirts out in society. That's that's either acceptable or unacceptable, depending on the way you look at it. But if you see someone else wearing an obscure football shirt, as Michael alludes to, it's a bit of a thrill because it because it's kind of it's like well, that's I mean, yeah, there's a whole Twitter but, account kind of dedicated. But to that's that's an internalised thrill, though, isn't it? Your, your thrill isn't like born of respect for that person; it's born of respect for yourself for recognising. It's, it's, it it's respect for yourself for recognising the shirt, isn't it? No. Surely, yeah, and, and also knowing the year, taking us back to another one of Michael's yeah. point. Recognizing the shirt and the year from a particular moment—that's that's that's, that's no the self gratification that you give yourself. Oh, it's brilliant. It's. Brilliant. I mean, there's certain situations like I often see people exercising in football shows. I, I, I completely get that, but there's certain situations like sometimes you see 
you know, like now there's a thing on, on, on Twitter where often football journalists will be posing in shirts of like PSG, which I'm, I just don't like PSG aren't cool. Mm. You don't support PSG. Yeah. And then you're going to be offering opinions on PSG when you've kind of implied that you like them. I, I just don't really understand how it works. Uh, and I understand, I understand as well that like this is, I'm straying dangerously closely to saying, oh, loads of people wear Ramones t-shirts when they don't know the name of the song. But I, I think my main objection is it's almost like the hijacking of football fandom by people who want to look cool. And I don't think football fandom is about trying to look cool. I much prefer football fandom when it's a bit like, this is a slightly geeky pastime. If I knew as much about trains as I do about football, I'd just be laughed out of town. Like it's, it's kind of sad, but we embrace that. And it's it now feels to me like that type of football fandom is the type of football fandom you only used to see in adverts, which just depict football fandom in a really odd, laddie, blokey, very cool way aspirational way when it's not really about that the um the ramones t-shirt reference is 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 such a perfect one i i did i think i actually i performed the circle of life when it comes to the ramones t-shirt i bought one back in the day didn't know who the ramones were never heard a song by the ramones wore it proudly thought it was the coolest thing they've ever seen it was a nicely designed t-shirt etc etc then i had the shame of realizing what a what a twat i looked and now looking back i felt like i've regrown some pride about it because I thought oh at least at least I did it you know at least I can say I was there and I did it <laughs> and then I you know and then I've watched the video of Tim from the office shaming Tim Lovejoy for wearing a Ramones t-shirt which I think is the greatest piece of thing ever created by anybody ever so I've done that I've done the whole the whole circle finds the Ramones but I but I but I haven't yet translated it to a football shirt but okay after all of this James I'll come to you first is there a single football shirt from history Retro looking or otherwise, that comes close to being a universally accepted fashion item. Well, it's interesting because we, we do need to define between a shirt that someone has owned for 25 years. Like, and, and this has only just come to mind now. And I went to some of the games at the Euros with Michael and he was wearing the Euro, the England Euro 96 shirt that he actually had That's at true. the time. I, and I had one of those, I have to say, I had one of those shirts at the time as well and mine did not fit me. So it wasn't a score draw I did not fit. Mine did not fit me now and Michael did fit him. So we've been on different journeys. Um, <laughs> that feels slightly different. I think that shirt is probably the one. What One like that. I, and I feel like it, wearing an England shirt in a tournament is a slightly different thing. And maybe that is culturally different to 20 years ago. Yeah, but I kind of, of a movement. Yeah, right? I kind of feel like that's yeah. okay. And people, you know, you can't, expect, right. you can't expect everyone to go out and buy a New England shirt every two mm. years, can you? Mm. I just don't what? think there's, there's not an answer to this, Michael. I mean, you take you take a communal experience of a, of a major tournament out of the equation. What football shirt are you going to wear in a social setting, like a low key social setting, and just wear it for what it is? It's not going to happen, is it? No, absolutely not. And I, I think it's definitely been killed off by the fact that I'm fairly sure that. Jay from the Inbetweeners was often seen in like a red England shirt, like a retro one from 1990. And if if the writers have decided that a bloke like Jay would wear a football shirt in a social context, that kind of means that you shouldn't be doing it. Okay, so that brings us to the end of Meza Holland Dicks. Um, I feel like we've made peace with a lot of things in football here. Football and geography, the magic of. Michael Cox sticking up for the 3pm blackout. Being able to date anything in your life through football matches and events, a unifying phenomenon. Performative anger and misery in football fandom. 
We don't make it easy for ourselves on the Football Clichés podcast, do we, James? <laughs> no, no, we don't, no. The idea that a good piece of skill destroys an opponent, um, a brilliant skewering of um, performative social media enjoyment of nutmegs there, enjoyable. And football shirts becoming a fashion thing. We've sounded very old today, Michael. It, I mean, it's not something I'm massively keen on, but, you know, if that's where it takes us, so be it. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, I should repeat again, the things I like about football came to me very quickly. I had to search really for things that annoyed me. So I think that's a good sign. Fantastic. Glad to hear you enjoyed it. Thanks to you, James, for joining us. Thanks for having me. My one regret is that I've not disagreed with Michael on anything, which seems a bit of a yeah, shame. Yeah, it was a real shame. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame. Yeah, we should, we, should, we should have challenged him more, yeah. but it is what it is. Thank you to you, Michael. Thank you. My pleasure. And we'll see everyone next week. Bye-bye. The Athletic. <laughs>